Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are continuing in the book of Jeremiah. Tonight we will be looking at Jeremiah 12. If you turn to Jeremiah 12, put a bookmark or a finger there, because we're actually going to be reading out of the Psalms to begin this evening, but not Tom. Tom is going to turn to the book of Job, Job 21, verse 7. Be prepared to read that for us. Certain questions that come up in the Bible are sort of universal questions, meaning they're applicable to all time. If you are a person with any kind of a God consciousness, when you look at the world today, I'm sure you have asked the same question that Job has asked. And that is written in the Psalms and that Jeremiah asks. And it's a question that we're going to be really familiar with because we look at the world today and I'm sure we have all had the exact same thought. And the thought is, why do the wicked prosper? I mean, given the fact that God is a holy God and a righteous God and he's against his enemies and he's going to judge the wicked of the world then why is it that when we look at the world, it seems like the wicked are doing just fine? They're doing great and always prospering. And meanwhile, we, the people of God, the people who are professing Christ, the people who have faith in the written word, we seem to be struggling to get through life. And how is that fair? Well, if your worldview, if your view of the meaning of life is limited to right here, right now. This is all you get. You get your three score in 10, and then that's it. Then indeed, it is really unfair that during the time we who are trying to do good things, we who are trying to be righteous and sacrificial and loving, we struggle in this life, and the evil seem to do really, really well, and that would be really unfair if that was the end of the story. And that's why the Bible keeps saying, that's not the end of the story, though. And so God's answer is always, hang on, I got it. What is this compared to eternity? And so this is going to come up repeatedly. For instance, we'll start in Job 21.7, and we'll hear Job ask that same question. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and they're mighty in power? Even Job, way back then, arguably the oldest book in the Bible, brings up that question. Let's all turn to Psalm 73. And even though there are a couple of verses here that I wanted to concentrate on, we're going to read the whole psalm because it's really all about that theme. This is a psalm of Asaph. It begins, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
But then he admits very honestly, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So even Asaph is admitting God's a good God. But when I look around the world and I see what the wicked are getting out of this life, he says, I I almost slipped. And I found myself being envious of the prideful and the arrogant and people who were anti-God and yet seemed to be doing great in this life. And I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Once upon a time, having sufficient food to eat was a sign of wealth. If you didn't have any money and you were very skinny and poor, you, you didn't have access to food. And so he's saying, these folks, the wicked, the arrogant, seem to have no pain in their death, and their body is fat when they die, so they've had plenty in this life. And they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. And their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. And they have set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place. The waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? You're going to see a similar thing in Jeremiah's place, where he's going to say part of the reason that the wicked do the things they do is because they don't believe God sees it. They don't believe God cares or that God is going to recompense it. After all, he hasn't so far, and so they assume that means he's never going to do it. Asaph says the same thing, that they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and they're always at ease, and they have increased in wealth. And surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure. So he's being really honest here and admitting, I've tried to do righteousness my whole life. I've tried to keep my heart pure. And what has it gotten me? It's all for nothing because the wicked seem to be getting everything and increasing in wealth. And surely, in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Can I get a witness? Every day seems difficult. And you say, well, I'm trying to do the right thing, God. I'm trying to be righteous. I'm trying to be pure of heart. I'm trying to be giving, trying to be sacrificial. Can't you just let me up for a minute? I cry, uncle, just let me up for a minute. I've been stricken all day long, and I get chastened every morning. Now, of course, the writer of Hebrews picks this up, and to add to the universality of it among all of God's people, he says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. 
And then it goes further and says, and he scourges every son that he receives. And then argues that if you haven't had that chastening from God, you're not a son. You're an illegitimate child. So whether we're talking Old Testament, whether we're talking the Psalms, whether we're talking Job, in a moment we're going to see in Jeremiah, whether we're talking Hebrews, this theme keeps coming up that we who follow after God, follow after righteousness, have a tough time in this world. It's good to know that this world is not our home. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy people. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Here's the answer. You look at the world with fleshly view and you say, this isn't right, this isn't fair. I'm chastened constantly and the rich seem to be doing great. I mean, you can be mentally incapacitated and still be in Congress or president. The wicked are doing fine. And we who are attempting to follow after God, life seems just so difficult for us. And Asaph says, I thought about this stuff and it just it, it ran around and around in my head. It troubles me. It's troublesome. It's worrisome to me. Why is it like this? And I thought that until I came in to the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived the end of the wicked. Then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places. You're setting traps for them. Their their feet are going to slip. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. When my heart was embittered, I was pierced within. And then I was senseless and ignorant. So very honest. He's saying, when I had my mind wrong, when I was thinking it's unfair that righteous people like me were struggling and suffering and that every day is difficult for me, and meanwhile, the rich just seem to be going from wealth to wealth and everything is fine for them, he says, that's when I was bitter against you, God. And when my heart was embittered, I was pierced within. I was unsettled within. It was difficult for me to figure it out. And so he says, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast in front of you. So in other words, when your mind gets worldly, fleshly, you start thinking, this isn't right, this isn't fair. And then you go to the sanctuary of God, and then you get your mind right, and then you're reminded that this life is a vapor, and a man's life goes by really quick, can I get a witness, and and it's full of trouble, says the Bible. Jesus himself said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have difficulty. That's part of the package. They're going to hate you because they hate me. That's just the way it is going to be for you in the world, but... 
What is your 70 some odd years down here compared to eternity? So, okay, they get their 70 years of comfort and wealth, and then they get eternity under God's judgment. You have a difficult time down here for your 70-some-odd years, and then you get an eternity of joy in the presence of God where the finger of God is going to wipe away every tear, where there's no more pain or sickness or death, and that's forever, the place of everlasting joy. So that's the trade-off. You either get the good stuff now your best life now, for those of you who would like a book to read. Uh, you either have that now and then judgment eternal or the difficulty of this life and then joy eternal. And when you have the mind of God, when you get your mind right, when you stop being embittered against God, you recognize and you understand what the end of those people is versus what the long-term <laughs> prospect is for you, which is far, far better. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Thou hast taken a hold of my right hand. With thy counsel, thou wilt guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. That's the way our lives work. Even as we're going through the difficulties of this life, God has not abandoned us. He is still with us. He's right there beside us. He's taking us by the hand and guiding us through this life. I've asked this question so many times, but I'm going to do it again. And uh, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have gone through a trial in this life where you felt like this one's going to kill me? I'm not going to make it. I'm just, I'm not going to make it. I, I saw Luann's eyes. I mean, I know for a fact that she's had trials in this life where she thought, that's it, I'm not going to make it. Yeah. So how many of you who felt like you weren't going to make it are here tonight? All yeah, that make all of you. <laughs> and how did you do that? How is it that you're still here even though you've gone through difficulty and trials in this life that you thought were going to destroy you? It wasn't your power or your might or your strength. It was God and his taking you by the hand and guiding you through this life, even through the difficulties. Paul picks it up and writes to the Corinthians that there is no trouble, no temptation taking you in this life, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will, with that temptation, provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. Okay, so Old or New Testament, we're being told the same thing. Yes, life is tough, but God has not abandoned you, and the reason you're getting through the difficulties of this life is because God himself has guided you through this life, and when this life is over, then you go to glory. Well, that's a better deal. When you die, even if you get all the toys, even if you get all the stuff and all the money, even if you get everything you can possibly get in this life, when you die, how much of that do you take with you? Nothing. Just not a thing. Mm. So what did it benefit you eternally? Not a thing. But if in this lifetime, God gives you food, gives you shelter, gives you clothing, <coughs> takes you by the hand, guides you through this life, and then gives you glory forever, how much did you just gain? Everything. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me, and afterwards receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. That's the proper attitude. As long as you've got God, you're going to get through this life, and you're going to go into eternity, and he's going to take you safely home. And so, in heaven there are no other gods. Who do I have in heaven to guide me? No one but you, no one but Yahweh. And besides you, I don't desire anything else. And the remarkable thing is we would all have to admit that even though we would like to think that that's our attitude, that as long as I have you, I don't need anything else, think of all the everything else God has given you. We all drove here in cars, and we live in homes, and everybody ate today, and you know, God has given us so many blessings. Sometimes it's easy to just concentrate on the difficulties of this life and forget how faithful he's been to us all the rest of the time, even through those difficulties. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and he is my portion forever. For behold... Those who are far from you will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. So they think that the money, the power, the wealth that this world can offer them, they think that's the ultimate good. That's what they pursue. That's what they chase. That's what they're ready to go crazy for. But... For you, for the people of God, for the people who have the spirit of God, for the people who have the heart of God, it is the very fact that God is near us, protecting us, guiding us by the hand. That is the ultimate good. We are so much wealthier than the Bill Gates of this world. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. So what are you going to brag about? You're going to brag about your big home or your new car or your 84-inch TV. or You're going to brag about your stuff. You can brag about God because it is God who is the one who is getting you through this lifetime. And all the other things you have are blessings that you don't begin to deserve. He's just being really kind and really gracious to you in feeding you every single day, in putting clothes on your back, multiple sets of clothes on your back, changes of clothes on your back. And then some people with all those options wear an old Star Wars shirt. I had to do it, sorry. Turn to Jeremiah 12. Now Jeremiah is going to confront that very same question. Now remember, Jeremiah 12 is a continuation of Jeremiah 11, which we looked at last week. This is the fourth vision so far, or the fourth message from God that Jeremiah has heard so far. And really, chapter 12 is a continuation of that same message. In fact, Look at chapter 11, verse 15. It says, What right has my beloved in my house? 
And I emphasized last week that here is erring Israel, and God still refers to her as my beloved, even as he's putting her out of his house because she has done many vile deeds. Nevertheless, he refers to her as my beloved. And then that summation of Israel's circumstances is interrupted by verse 18, where the Lord made it known to me, and I knew it, that there was a plan out there to kill Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah prays to God, who judges righteously and tries the feelings of the heart. And Jeremiah says, let me see your vengeance on those, my enemies, the young men of Anathoth, the people of of my hometown who are trying to kill me. And therefore, the Lord of hosts says at the end of the chapter, behold, I'm about to punish them. The young men will die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters will die by famine. And a remnant will not be left in them, for I will bring disaster on the men of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. And then Jeremiah replies yet again. This is an ongoing conversation. Jeremiah replies again, but look down to verse 7. God speaking, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. So he's continuing the same set of curses against my beloved, against Israel, who has erred and sinned against him. So he is interrupted by this conversation with Jeremiah as he is continuing to tell about what he is going to do to them. And so at the beginning of chapter 12, Jeremiah responds again to God now that God says that he's going to cut off the remnant of the young men of Anathoth. Chapter 12, verse 1, righteous art thou, O Lord. Okay, he's setting up his argument. He says, you're righteous and you're holy. Everything about you is righteous. And I want to plead my case with you. Because you're a righteous God, because you're a holy God, I don't understand the way the world works. And so I want to ask you a question. I want to make a case here to you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Same question. Jeremiah now is like, look, there's people out to kill me. And they seem to be doing fine. They seem to be doing great. And I'm asking you, just punish them. And God says, don't worry, I will. Not immediately, perhaps. I'll I'll take care of it. I have a long-term plan for it. And then Jeremiah asks him, well, then, since you're righteous, since you're justice, since you are just, And since you hate your enemies, and these are plainly your enemies, why are they in such comfort? Why are they doing so well? Thou hast planted them, and they've also taken root. And they grow, and they've even produced fruit. And you are near their lips, but you're far from their mind. They talk, God talk. Look how God has blessed me. Look how I know the stuff of God. Look. uh, But the truth is their heart is a long way away from you. But they talk about you. 
And yet they seem to be doing great. And because you're sovereign and because you're in charge of all people, you're the one who planted them. And now they've taken root and they've spread branches and they're making fruit. They're prospering like mad. And you're the righteous one who's supposed to be hating them. Why does the world work this way? Verse 3. But thou knowest me, O Lord. Thou seest me, and thou dost examine my heart's attitude toward you. You know that I care. That You know that I'm carrying the message you've given me. You know that I'm undergoing punishment from these people. I am in fear of death from these very people who seem to be prospering so much. And you know me. You know my heart. You know the way I'm trying to live. Why am I struggling and suffering and they're doing great? Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter. That's what Jeremiah wants. Just wipe them off the earth. You're the just holy one. Get rid of them. Set them apart for a day of carnage. Nice language, Jeremiah. They want to kill me. God, just destroy them. How long is the land supposed to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither for the wickedness of those who dwell in it? Animals and birds have been snatched away because men have said, he will not see our latter ending. In other words, God doesn't see. He doesn't know what we're doing. He doesn't know our plan. He doesn't know what we've got going for us. And as a result, God has already told Jeremiah that the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, that promised land that was once full of milk and honey, is now a land that is set for ruination. And Jeremiah is saying, why is the land that you love and placed your name on, why is that suffering ruination for the sake of these people? Just wreck them. Just destroy them. Why are you letting this much difficulty happen so that the land is mourning and the vegetation in the countryside is withering because of the wickedness of those who are dwelling in it? Why do you let them continue in it? Verse 5 is now the beginning of God's answer. And you would like to think that God would be sympathetic. That he would say, yeah, it's been six years, Jeremiah. It's been a tough ride so far. Yeah, I get it. I'm sorry. I'll I'll clean up this mess right away and make things easier for you. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, you think this is tough? Hang on. I got more for you. Remember, Jeremiah's prophetic ministerial career is about 30 years. He has no converts, and he's about to suffer a whole lot more, according to this book. And God knows what's coming for him. So rather than saying to Jeremiah, you're right, you're right, poor guy, I didn't mean to be so tough on you. Instead, instead what he says is, you better toughen up and toughen up quick, because I'm about to make it even worse on you. I don't think that's the answer Jeremiah was looking for. But then at the same time, God says, and I'll deal with your enemies. I'll take care of them, just not yet. They're all part of the plan. They're all part of what I'm doing here. 
trust me, but it's going to get more difficult. Now, by the way, I have an NASB Bible I'm looking at right here. And just before verse 7, there is a title that the NASB translators threw in that says, God's answer. That's a weird place to put that because God starts answering in verse 5. And so I, I don't know what that heading was for. Just know that those kind of headings inside these chapters are, are just editorial decisions. They weren't in the original text. They're not inspired. And this one is, what's that wrong? Wrong is what this one is. ESV has it in the right place. ESV has it in the right place? Mm-hmm. So it must be. Good for them. <laughs> Here's God's answer. If you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, how can you compete with horses? What's God saying? He's saying, if you're just running with other men, footmen who are running along carriages and stuff, if you're just running with them and that's too much for you, so what you've been through so far is like running with footmen, what are you going to do when I ask you to run with horses? If this is too difficult for you, you're going to fold under what's coming. If you've run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, when everything is relatively quiet, how will you do when you're in the thicket of Jordan? Along the Jordan River, there were thickets that would trip people. I mean, literally, in trying to pull your feet out, people would fall down over it. And then he says, as if things weren't bad enough, it was the men of Anathoth, his own neighbors, who were trying to kill him. God now goes beyond that and says, it's going to be your own family. It's going to be your own brothers that are going to try to kill you. It's going to get worse. If you fall down in a land that's not tripping you, how are you going to be able to stand when the thickets are around your legs? For even your brothers and the household of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Even they have cried aloud after you. Do not believe them, even though they may have nice things to say to you. (laughs) Even though they may try to give you flattering speech. Even though they may look like friends and family to your face. The fact is... They're all going to turn against you, and you need to be prepared for those days when you got nobody but me, when even your closest friends, companions, neighbors, family, brothers, when everybody turns against you and you got nothing but me, is that going to be enough for you? God says in verse 7, I have forsaken my house. That's his heritage, Israel. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance, Israel, has become like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. And therefore, I've come to hate her. Is my inheritance like a speckled bird of prey to me? That's an old Hebraism that we've kind of lost the sense of. What it means is, if you're talking about birds of prey, they're all basically marked the same. Speckled, that word also means colored. 
And it is a fact of nature that when a bird of a different color is in a flock, the rest of the flock will surround him because they think he's a stranger. They'll attack him. And so he's saying, now Israel has become like that speckled bird, and all the nations around them are going to attack. The rest of the verse says, are the birds of prey against her on every side? See that same image of birds attacking the speckled bird. Go gather all the beasts of the field and bring them in to devour When that bird has been killed by the other birds, it lays there until the jackals and the hyenas and the animals come and tear it apart and eat it. And he says, that's what I'm going to do to Israel. I'm going to bring all these other nations down on them like a speckled bird, and they are going to devour them. Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. They have trampled down my field, and they have made my pleasant field into a desolate wilderness. It has been made a desolation, desolate in mourns before me. The whole land has been made desolate because no man lays it to heart. Now, the fact that he says that in the past tense, he's not yet talking about the armies of Babylon, the armies from the north that are going to come. Instead, he is saying, just like Jeremiah said, why is the land being ruined for the sake of the evil people? I think that's what he is describing here when he says, many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. The vineyard would be Israel, his people. And then he sent them shepherds. He sent them prophets. He sent them leaders and priests. And I think those were the people who were supposed to lead Israel and instead have led them astray, led them to lies, led them into foreign gods. And so he's saying that since Jeremiah a moment ago said, why is the land having to suffer because of the evil people? He's now agreeing with Jeremiah and saying the people who should have done good and led the people in my way, according to my law, instead they've ruined my vineyard. They've trampled down my field. And they've made my pleasant field into this desolate wilderness you described. It's been made a desolation. Desolate it mourns before me. The whole land has been made desolate. Why? Because no man lays it to heart. No man thinks about it. No man has taken it to heart. No man has really understood that when God said to Israel, you do my law and I'll bless you. If you don't do my law, I'll curse you and I'll take you out of the land and I'll take you away from the land of milk and honey and I'll make it a desolation. And that's exactly what he is now going to do to Israel and nobody seems to be conscious of it. Because even when he tells Jeremiah to go and tell the people that, they instead hate Jeremiah for saying it and attempt to kill him rather than have their hearts turned to understand that this is the faithfulness of God in doing exactly what he promised to do. No man takes it to heart. So as a consequence of the shepherds that he has sent to Israel destroying Israel, he's now going to physically do that to them. He is now going to bring foreign armies down on them. That's verse 12. On all the bare heights in the wilderness, destroyers have come. For the sword of the Lord is devouring from one end of the land even to the other, and there is no peace for anyone. 
You'll notice that it is the Chaldeans. We know that's the army that he keeps referring to. He's going to bring them down from the north on Israel. But you'll notice that God does not give them the credit for what they're going to do in attacking Israel. Instead, he says, that's the sword of the Lord. He's so sovereign that if any army is able to come down on Israel, it's because God allowed them to. Because this is the same God who had the power to keep those foreign armies away from Israel and protect Israel. And now he's going to let down his guard. He's going to bring those armies down on Israel to refine them, to take them out of that land so that the land can be restored, so the land can be renewed, so it can keep its Sabbaths again for that 70 years that they're in Babylon. And God takes credit for all of it. It says the foreign armies of Babylon who don't know me are nevertheless a sword in my hand. I'm going to utilize people who don't know me in order to correct the people who should know me. Really, really sovereign. Verse 13. They, the people of Israel, have sown wheat, but they've reaped thorns. They have strained themselves in their work, in their effort, in their planting, in their harvesting. They have strained themselves to no profit. But they're ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Now God is taking credit for whether or not their harvest produces food. God is taking responsibility for all of it. They are about to suffer, and he's the one bringing the suffering on them, which is not the way that people typically construct God in their imagination. They say God is love, nothing but love, all loving. He would never do something like this. Here's God saying, let me tell you what I'm really like. I'm actually going to bring the armies down. They are a sword in my hand. They are going to punish and correct my people, drive them into 70 years of slavery in Babylon, and I'm responsible for all of that. I'm responsible for the fact that they're going to go hungry. I'm responsible for the fact that what we read last week, that they're even going to be eating their own children. That's how bad I'm going to make it for them. And I'm the God who does that. As he says in Isaiah, I'm the God that makes good, and I'm the God that brings raw. I'm the God that brings trouble. And there is no other God like me. Verse 14. Thus says the Lord, concerning all the wicked neighbors who strike at my inheritance. Okay, so this began with Jeremiah saying, what are you going to do about the wicked? Why don't you just wipe them out? God says they're part of my plan. They're a sword in my hand. I'm going to utilize them to instruct and correct my people. And then I'm going to deal with them. They're going to get their just desserts, but not yet because they are an instrument in my hand. So God in his great big sovereign plan, which is so often so much bigger than we begin to comprehend. And we think, why God? Why am I going through this? Why is this happening? Why is the world like this? Why is all this happening right now? Why is gas nearly four bucks a gallon? Why is all this happening in the world, God? He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. He's driving it toward the ultimate end that he has already described for us. But 
don't believe that the wicked are going to get away scot-free. Thus says the Lord concerning all my wicked neighbors who strike at the inheritance with which I have endowed my people. The inheritance that he has given to his people Israel is the land. And that's what Jeremiah was concerned with. Why is the land having to suffer at the hands of the wicked? And then God says he's going to bring the armies in and they're going to strike the land. And because God is faithful to his land, on top of being faithful to his people, he's then going to deal with the wicked neighbors of Israel, those Middle Eastern nations that are still a thorn in Israel's side. They are the wicked neighbors who are going to strike at the inheritance which I have endowed to my people Israel. And behold, I am about to uproot them from their land and will uproot the house of Judah from among them. Okay, so he said, in this case, it's Babylon and the Chaldeans. They're going to come down on Israel. Did God ever strike Babylon then later? Yeah, is there a Babylon today? Nope. No. Where'd they go? God punished them. And he punished them because they came down on the land of Israel. And why did they come down on the land of Israel? Because God used them to punish his people Israel. But notice that God said not only will he uproot them from their land, which he did, but he's also going to uproot the house of Judah from among them. And that happened. As the Medo-Persians conquer Babylon, and then Cyrus puts forward a decree, the very Cyrus that was predicted in the book of Isaiah 150 years before he was even king, and then he becomes the king of the Medo-Persians, and he allows Israel to come back, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, and Israel becomes a nation again in the Middle East, exactly like God said he was going to do. So, does God have a plan? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Do we get the big plan? No, because we don't have eternal vision of the whole thing. But he does. And so to us, sometimes it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem balanced. It doesn't seem fair. It seems unjust. And we'll look to him and say, but you're just and holy. Why are you making it like this? This doesn't seem just and holy. And his answer is, I know what I'm doing. I'll take care of it. And I'll take care of you. And I'll take you by the hand. And I'll get you through this life. And I'll get you safely all the way home. And you're going to eternally be in my presence and in my joy. Down here, you're going to struggle. Down here, you're going to suffer. But down here, I'm still going to be faithful to you and carry you through this. But I have a great big plan that is so far beyond your comprehension that you just need to trust me. Just have faith in me. I'm God, you're not. Sit down, shut up, trust me. Verse 15. And it will come about that after I have uprooted Judah from among them, I will again have compassion on Judah, the very ones who are his beloved, who he is correcting. I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them back, each one to his inheritance and each one to his land. I'm going to go get my people. I'm going to bring them back to my land. And then it will come about. He's now talking to the wicked neighbors that are around them. He says, if they will pay attention, when they see me 
restore Israel, when they see me yet again redeem my own people, if they'll look at that closely and learn about me, it will come about. If they will really learn my ways and learn the ways of my people and then swear by my name and say, as the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, the same way that they taught my people how to follow foreign idols, if they will instead teach my people how to live faithfully after me and to say, as Yahweh ever lives, if they'll do that, then they will be built up in the midst of my people. My people are going to be built up. My people are going to be secure. All the other nations, it's going to depend on how they react to my people. But, verse 17, but if they will not listen, then I will uproot that nation, uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. That's the answer to Jeremiah's question. What about the wicked? They're prospering. God's answer is, don't worry. I'm going to uproot them. I'm going to destroy them. They're either going to follow me. They're either going to learn my dictates. They're either going to follow after the religion of my people. Or I'm going to destroy them entirely. I'm not going to let the, the evil of this world just run rampant forever. God will ultimately judge in righteousness. And the only reason that the unrighteous think, oh, he doesn't see it, he doesn't know it, is because he hasn't brought that judgment about yet. And the reason he hasn't brought that judgment about yet is because it's still according to his plan. He's still accomplishing things by utilizing the evil of this world to accomplish his righteousness. But when he has accomplished all the righteousness that he's going to accomplish in this otherwise wicked world, he's then going to take us home and he's going to mop up the floor with the wicked. They are ultimately going to receive their punishment. We just have to be willing to wait on God's timing. And whether it's Job or whether it's Asaph in the Psalms, whether it's the writer of Hebrews or whether it's Jeremiah, we as humans all have that sense of, this is tough. This is difficult. And why isn't it easier? Look at the, these people over here who don't know you, who are wicked, who are cursing you. They've got it really good. That's a natural instinct we all have. So we have to do as Asaph did and remember to get your mind right when you come into the house of the Lord, when you come into the presence in the temple of God and you get your mindset right through, through his word, then you can understand everything that I've been trying to elucidate tonight, which is God knows what he's doing. Trust him. He's going to faithfully get you through this life. He's going to feed you. He's going to clothe you. He's going to take care of you. And he's going to take care of them. You're not big enough to take care of them. He's going to have to take care of them, and he will, so trust him. Make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Good chapter, huh? Uh -huh. Questions? Allison was actually saying the same thing Jeremiah was a couple weeks ago. She was saying, why is it that all these people around me are doing bad things, and all we try to do is do the right thing, and they succeed and get away with it, and we're the ones. I can't wait to go and share this with her. Good. Yeah. Good. That's because God.
God knew you needed to be here tonight then. Yeah. Yeah. Their only rewards are here. That's true. It's very true. But I'm not surprised to hear you say Allison asked it, because I think we all ask it. Yeah. I think at some point you go, is this worth it? Yeah, she, 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 she was really like beating her head against the wall thinking, yeah, yeah. I'm doing all these hard work and doing all the right things, and yeah. then there's other people who are doing bad, bad things. You're not the first, and you won't be the last. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.